So starting at verse 27, the authority of Jesus questioned. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared of people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them but they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they all respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked, away, looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Sometimes a story is just the best way of communicating. And we see that again and again in the Bible. Over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. That is true stories from Israel's history. And that doesn't include the New Testament, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the book of Acts. There is so much narrative, so much story in God's words. And then you look at Jesus' favorite teaching method, in the Gospels, telling parables, stories, like the parable of the tenants we're going to be looking at this morning. See, it's clear from Scripture that God created us to love stories. Good stories capture our imagination. And when it comes to Jesus' stories, the parables, good stories show us who God really is. And they also show us who we really are before God. And as a result, when we hear these stories, we somebody need to slow down and let them have their way with us. Let these stories unpick some of the, the guardrails we put around ourselves, the protection we put on, and to hear the loving, clear voice of Jesus speak to us through these stories. Because at the heart of the Christian message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's some really big concepts for us to grasp, two central concepts to grasp in the Christian message are the concept of sin and the concept of salvation, sin and salvation. Now, those are big Bible words, and often we're not entirely sure what to do with them. But I believe this parable of Jesus we're looking at is given to us by Jesus to help us see both those concepts in action, our sin and God's salvation. Because in one sense, it's possible to define what biblical writers mean by those things 
in just doing like sentences or definitions. So if you like sin at its simplest is our personal rejection of God. Sin is us rejecting God. Salvation, a bit longer, is the personal God coming near to us in his son and sacrificing himself in order to save us. That's a lot less punchy, isn't it? So sins are personal rejection of God. Salvation is God coming near to us in his son and sacrificing himself in order to save us. But I think sometimes we sort of, if that's just left and the big sort of concept idea, we're not sure where to go with it. I think that's where Jesus' parables, like this parable of the tenants, really help us. Because the parable of the tenants, I think, helps us to see the ugliness of human sin. The ugliness of that rejection of God through the actions of the ungrateful, rebellious, and cruel tenants in this story. But also this parable, I think, gives us a glimpse of the cost of salvation. All that Jesus entered our world to accomplish through the actions of the owner of the vineyard and what happens to the son he loves. See, what this parable shows is that both sin and salvation are deeply personal. Sin is always personal, and so is the salvation God has won for us through Jesus. So let's orient ourselves in this bit of Mark. If you are here last week, you might remember that what Mark's trying to show us in this section of his gospel, the focus of this bit of Mark, Mark 11 to 13, is on Jesus as judge. So Jesus is God's king come to judge the leaders of God's people of ancient Israel. And the question Mark helps us answer in, in this section and the sections to come is really, why is Jesus going to judge the leaders of God's people? And Mark shows us here by showing us the hostility of the religious leaders towards Jesus, the Son of God. But actually, Jesus shows us in the events of the parable, he tells as well. It's a vivid story that describes ancient Israel's relationship to the living God throughout our history, and even more so, the relationship of the religious leaders, these chief priests, elders, scribes, towards the Son of God when he comes to see them. So where we're headed this morning, we're going to look briefly at the first clash between Jesus and the religious leaders in chapter 11, and then spend most of our time looking at this parable Jesus tells. Let's look at this passage together. My voice is slightly more manly today because I've got a cold. Let me just drink. I call it manly. Other people don't. But yeah, if you want to look at verse 27, this is where Mark introduces us to the religious leaders. He refers to them here as the chief priests, verse 27 of chapter 11, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. This group was also known as the Sanhedrin, made up of 71 leaders that dominated Jewish religious and political life. And they were made up largely of three groups that often clashed with each other, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in chapter 12 of Mark, we're going to see Jesus clashes with each and every one of those three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in these chapters, it's almost like one of those sort of action movies where the hero's there and the bad guys just send one person after another to fight the hero. And the hero, every time he's able just to send them packing, and then the next person comes up. It's like the Jewish religious leaders, they're sending their very best people to challenge Jesus, to, to catch him out, to trap him. And every single time, Jesus outsmarts them. He outthinks them. He demonstrates they will never be able to catch him out unless he willingly gives himself over into their hands. So what was the first clash between Jesus and the religious leaders all about. 
Well, basically, it's a question of Jesus' authority. Verse 20, it's the question of Jesus' authority. Let me read from verse 27. So Jesus and the disciples arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? By what authority are you doing this, Jesus? Now, to understand the tone of these questions, you need to remember what Jesus has just done in Mark chapter 11. Back in chapter 11, verse 15, Jesus drove out the animal traders. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He wouldn't allow people to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus walked into the temple of Jerusalem like he owned the place. And he started cleaning up. He put a stop to the noisy buying and selling that was going on there. So the religious leaders are angry at Jesus. He is clearly challenging their authority and the way they are running the temple. And more than that, verse 18, look back in chapter 11, religious leaders are now looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him. So the religious leaders, they want Jesus dead. And the question they ask is part of an attempt to catch him out and make this happen. Now, that word authority, uh, the Greek word's exousia, it's one that keeps appearing in Mark's gospel. You can actually argue it's one of the most commonly recurring words in the whole gospel because this whole gospel, particularly chapters 1 to 8, the question there is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And there's a huge emphasis in the opening chapters of Mark on Jesus' authority. Mark keeps referring to it when you look at chapters 1, 2, 3, etc. So the early chapters of Mark, it's Jesus' authority to teach God's word authority to drive out demons, even to forgive sins. We see Jesus' authority over Satan, the strong man opposing and oppressing this world. We see his authority over the Sabbath, over the law of Moses. We see in chapters um, five, and, uh, chapters four and five of Mark, we see Jesus' authority over creation when he calms a storm, over evil when he frees a demon-possessed man, over sickness when he heals a woman affected by bleeding for 12 years, even over death when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter back to life. Again and again, Mark is showing us Jesus' unique authority over all things. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And actually, the religious leaders are often there seeing Jesus demonstrate his authority. But they have always rejected Jesus' authority. And they continue to do so here. So this question, verse 28, it's not a genuine one or an honest one. They just want to use it to catch Jesus out. Either Jesus is going to say, well, I've got no authority, actually. And then he has to submit to religious leaders. Or maybe Jesus is going to say he's he's got God's authority. And they can say, ah, well, that's blasphemy, Jesus. And they can gather a crowd together and deal with this blasphemous man in the temple courts. So how is Jesus going to respond? Well, as is so often the way in the Gospels, look at verse 29. Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. Jesus answers their question with a question, verse 29. Jesus replied, I'm going to ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And it's striking when you read the four Gospels how many times Jesus does this. He answers a question 
with a question. Actually, very rarely does Jesus give a concise, clear answer to a question. He always goes, well, what do you think? Why do you call me good? What does the law say? He's someone who asks questions of the people he meets. And just as a tangent almost, I think there's a lot we can learn about Jesus asking questions in the way that we perhaps want to share our faith about Jesus or indeed love one another well in our lives. See, Jesus asks questions of people as a way of loving the person in front of him and wanting to get to know them. Asking questions demonstrates you want to know more about the person you're speaking to. You're not presuming you've got them figured out. A few years ago, as elders, we were chatting and, and I was challenged that I, I, a danger I have is I mind read. I'd love to say I can genuinely mind read. I can't. But tactically, I go, well, I think I know where this person's coming from, so I'm going to presume this. And actually, some of my friends said to me, ask the question. Don't make the decision for the person. Don't presume you know where they're coming from. Ask the question. That's often what Jesus does in the Gospels. He doesn't presume. He goes, tell me, what do you mean by that? Why do you call me good? Who made me judge over you? He asks a question because he wants to know what the other person is thinking or feeling. He wants to know where they're coming from. And as we seek to love people around us, that is a great tactic. Ask questions. Don't presume. Don't mind read. Ask questions. Now, I say that sort of a tangent in some ways because actually it is a bit different here in Mark 11. It feels different. This never becomes a dialogue or an open conversation because the religious leaders, we've already seen, they're not interested in hearing what Jesus said. These are finding a way to kill him. So they're not even listening to Jesus' question. And that's sad because actually the question Jesus asked them to consider about John's baptism is actually designed to lead them to see who Jesus really is. Look at verse 30 again. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, some people think Jesus is just dodging the question. He's being a bit, a bit sort of, you know, just sneaky here. But actually, no. Actually, by asking a question about John, Jesus is challenging these religious leaders to make a decision about who he is. Because right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, John the Baptist was a huge deal, and he baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. And this was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And Mark tells us the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and God the Father spoke over him, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. See, John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for the Lord. And John's baptism demonstrated Jesus is the Lord we have been waiting for. Now, of course, if John's baptism was just of human origin, then the religious leaders can just reject Jesus and, and maybe kick him out of the temple. But if John's baptism is from heaven, Jesus says, then the religious leaders need to listen to Jesus. It's actually a really key question Jesus poses them. But verses 31 to 32, the religious leaders, they're not interested in responding to Jesus' invitation. They get tied up in knots, thinking, how do we answer this question? If we say this, then we, we might be saying this, say this, we say this. And so verse 33, we don't know. That's the answer they come up with. We don't know. These are the finest religious minds in Jerusalem. And they say, we don't know. In their stubborn rejection of Jesus, they have blinded themselves to seeing who Jesus really is. So Jesus doesn't answer their question either. Verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I think the religious leaders are here as a real warning sign 
for us. If the questions we ask Jesus are genuine ones, we see all the way through the Gospels, Jesus is committed to responding to them. He's committed to meeting with us. But if we come to Jesus and we think we've already made our mind up who Jesus is, we already know what he's going to say, then actually we're often going to miss out on knowing Jesus and the life he alone can give to us. So in a sense, it's not just even enough to ask the question, what is our attitude behind the question? Are we genuinely open to hearing what Jesus has to say? The religious leaders here are not, and Jesus knows it, and he responds to them accordingly. So as that first clash with religious leaders comes to an end, then Jesus proceeds to tell the religious leaders, his disciples, the whole crowd around him, a parable. And it's a parable we often refer to as the parable of the tenants. <clears throat> and it's the only major parable told by Jesus in this section of Mark. And it tells the story of ancient Israel's relationship to the living God throughout their history and how the religious leaders of Jesus' day respond to the coming of God's Son. I want to say it's a vivid story of human sin, of the patience and love of God, of the judgment that is coming on the religious leaders. But also this story gives us a glimpse of the sacrifice Jesus is actually declaring he is willing to make to accomplish God's purposes so that people from every nation under heaven can come to know and find life in Jesus. So the setting of this story in Mark 12, it's a vineyard. Picture there, I think that's a Middle Eastern vineyard, I hope it is. Um, and this is sort of set in the world of tenant farming, the idea of you maybe you don't own the land, you farm, but you, you basically get it off another farmer and you, you farm it for them. And, and this was a very common everyday experience in Israel. Many of Jesus' hearers would have been tenant farmers. But there's also an Old Testament background to this story. So a bit like the fig tree we looked at last week, a vineyard in the Old Testament is often used as a picture for God's people, ancient Israel. And the greatest example of that is in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Something's called the Song of the Vineyard. Let me read that out for us, Isaiah 5, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. In fact, this song of the vineyard, it's, it's like a blues song almost, a song of lament and sadness. It's a picture of God's people in the Old Testament and how God loves them, longs for them, and yet they yield only bad fruit. So the emphasis in Isaiah 5 is just how well God cares for his vineyard, for his people. It's located on a fertile hillside, Isaiah says. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the best vines. He built a watchtower around it. But in spite of all this care and concern, it yielded only bad fruit. It's a song of sadness and lament about God's people. So building on that song of the vineyard, Jesus' parable focuses even more on the ugly heart of human sin seen most clearly in Israel's religious leaders and their response to him. According to Jesus, what went wrong with God's vineyard was the ingratitude of God's people and their personal persistent rejection of the living God and his right to rule 
over them. It is a vivid story of human sin, God's response to human sin, but actually also God's solution to human sin. So just walking through the parable, it's a very simple story. Begins this parable, Jesus, with a portrait of the owner of this vineyard. And, and the first thing we notice about this owner is, is he is generous. So again, that follows on from Isaiah 5, but it's a generous owner renting out his vineyard. So the owner plants the vineyard, puts a wall around it, dig, digs a pit for the wine press, builds a watchtower. It wants this owner has gone above and beyond to ensure the vineyard will thrive, to make life easy for his tenants. Not every owner of a vineyard went to these lengths for tenant farmers, but this owner is generous. But in spite of all this, Jesus tells us the tenants reject the owner. Look at verse two for a minute. So at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And that's very normal, so far so good. This is part of the deal between owners and tenant farmers. Verse three, but they seized the servant, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is the first kind of shock moment for Jesus' hearers. The tenants reject the owner's right to collect some of the fruit from his own vineyard. This is an ugly rejection of a generous owner. And if that's the first twist in the parable, well, the owner's reaction is the next twist. Because Jesus here would say, well, well that's, that's ridiculous, that's, that's shocking. What the owner's going to do, he's going to fly into a ridge, gather together some men, and kick the tenants off his land immediately. But no. Look at verses 4 to 5. The owner is astonishingly patient with his tenants here. Instead of kicking them off his land straight away, he chooses to send more servants to the vineyard. Then he sent another servant to them, verse 4, and another, and he sent many others, verse 5. And this owner wants to give the tenants time to do the right thing. He wants to give them an opportunity to, to acknowledge the owner's right to the fruit of his own vineyard. And how will the tenants respond to this patience on the part of the owner? Well, they keep rejecting him again and again and again. Verse 4, they, he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. It's this relentless, grim story of violence on the part of the tenants towards the owner's servants. I think we're meant to ask the question, but at this point in the story, what sort of owner is this? Why on earth is the owner being so patient with such cruel, rebellious tenants? He became really justified to, to send in the big guns and to kick them off his land. But instead, this owner keeps giving the tenants chance after chance after chance to do the right thing. To the point where after a while, the tenants start to see the owner's patience as a sign of the owner's weakness. Well, we can do what we want. We can do whatever we want for this vineyard. Now we'll pause for a moment. Because again, it's clear to Jesus' hearers, verse 12, it's clear to the chief priests and the religious leaders who is standing for who in this story. The owner here stands for the living God, the owner of the vineyard, like in Isaiah 5. And the tenants stand for Israel's religious leaders. And Jesus pointing out the astonishing patience of God towards sinful people. 
The servants sent by the owner, that seems clear, they stand for God's prophets across the Old Testament. People like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Deborah. They are prophets sent by God to call his people back to himself, to warn God's people of the consequences of what they're doing, to urge them to repent and put their faith in God. And again and again in the Old Testament, God's servants, the prophets, are treated terribly by God's people. They're rejected, they're mocked, they're attacked. And like the tenants, God's people refuse to listen to the servants God sends to them. So again, we get to this point, this midway point in the parable. You think, well, enough already. The tenants, they are clearly rotten to the core. Just kick them off your vineyards. But again, the owner does something else unexpected and shocking for us. Verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Now, it's helpful to someone who's listening to Jesus' parables to imagine what the crowd might be thinking or even potentially shouting out at various points. I just think at this point, they're going, don't do it, owner. Don't do it. Can't you see what's going to happen? We can all see what's going to happen. Can't we? I mean, don't do it. Don't send your son. You love him. Why on earth would you send him? Look what they did to the servants. They're, they're clearly going to treat him the same way. What is Jesus showing the crowd here? I think he's showing the relentless shocking love of God and patience of God towards his people. The owner isn't willing just to walk away from this gruesome, ugly, rebellious group of tenants. So he thinks, well, what can I send? Who can I send? I'm going to send my son because I love him. They're going to see maybe they don't understand that I love them. Maybe they don't understand that, so I'll send that. And they'll see there's time to do the right thing, time to be reconciled to the owner. Just look at the message we sent us. Clearly, we need to take this seriously. We need to change our ways. But no. What the crowd probably fears will happen, happens. The tenants kill the son, verse 7. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. See, for the owner, sending his son was a sign of his love and patience, of his desire for reconciliation with these tenants. For the tenants themselves, this is an opportunity to get the vineyard all to themselves. The tenants have got to a point where they see themselves as invincible, untouchable. They see the owner as weak. And with the son out of the way, they think, well, the owner is just going to sit around until he dies, and then we'll inherit the vineyard. It's, it's a disturbing picture of just how cold and cruel the tenants have become in their rejection of the owner. And again, just we need to try and pause and imagine the man who's telling the story. Imagine how Jesus would be feeling as he tells this part of the story to the religious leaders. He's looking them in the eye, describing how these tenants will take the son, kill him, and throw him out of the vineyard. And he's saying that to the very people who are plotting to kill him. Jesus putting himself in this story and speaking to the people who want him dead, and he's describing what they want to do to him. And it is ugly. Because the tenants don't just kill the son, they treat the son with absolute contempt. 
So they murder the son, and then they refuse to even bury him. That's the big shock here. They throw the body outside the vineyard. It's a powerful picture of the death Jesus is going to die at the hands of his enemies. Just a few days after telling this parable, Jesus will allow himself to be arrested and condemned to death under false charges. And he will be beaten by sticks and flogged. He will be stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And the people he's telling the story to are going to do it. His death will take place outside the city, away from civilized people like the religious leaders, except the religious leaders will choose to be there so they can mock him and ridicule him. Most victims of crucifixion were criminals or peasants like Jesus, so they wouldn't be given a proper burial. Their bodies would be left to hang as a warning, and then they'd be dumped into communal graves. Actually, this is why the figure of Joseph of Arimathea is such a significant one in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a remarkable figure in the gospels. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, one of the religious leaders who usually are opposed to Jesus. And yet we read in the gospel accounts, Joseph went to the Roman governor Pilate. He asked for Jesus' body and he dressed the corpse in linen and buried him in his own tomb made out of the rock. It's a remarkable act of kindness and respect towards Jesus because without Joseph's actions, the fate of Jesus' body could have been very much like that of the owner's son here in the parable. What are we meant to make of this parable? I hope we can see this is just such a, a condemnation of Israel's religious leaders and the way they respond to both God and to God's Son. And even more than that, I want to say it's a picture of the ugliness of human sin. Beloved used to say this is just the religious leaders in Jesus' day's problem. I think Jesus is painting such a bleak picture because he wants us to see what is at the heart of human sin. It's a personal rejection of the God who has given us life and breath and everything we own. See, in the owner of the vineyard, we see the generosity of God, the patience of God, the love of God. In the tenants, we see the ingratitude of humanity, the stubborn rejection of God in his ways, the ruthless desire to do away with God and become gods ourselves. Again, Jesus shows us sin is personal. It is always personal. It's not just disobeying a law issued by government a long way away and, oh, no one's going to get hurt. No one's, this isn't important. It is a personal rejection of the living God and of the son he loves. Jesus raises the stakes here. Because left to our own devices, we want God's stuff, God's gifts, but we do want God. We live in God's world, yet we ignore God and fail to thank him as we should. We take what God offers and we want God out of the picture. It is such a vivid picture in this parable of human sin. And at once, it's like stories, it is, it is painted large. We maybe think, well, I could never be as bad as those tenants. But the reality is that same ingratitude, that same greed, that same self-obsession lives in every single one of us. This is the heart of human sin. We might not be beating and killing servants. But actually, in one sense, we just don't want God to have the rights he has over our lives. 
And Jesus wants us to face up to that. He actually wants the people who are going to kill him to face up to that. It's an astonishing moment. And Jesus is able to face the ugliness of human sin full on because it is that ugliness that he entered our world to set us free from. Again, I think in many ways this parable, it's a grim picture of Israel's religious leaders and sinful humanity in general. But you'll hopefully notice the parable doesn't end with the death of the son. The tenants don't have the last word. Human sin doesn't have the last word. The last word belongs to the owner of the vineyard and to Jesus, the son of God, who willingly came near to us and tells this story to give us a glimpse into what he is about to do. So verse nine, the owner judges the tenants. Turns out the owner of the vineyard isn't weak after all. He's not powerless about this. He could have stepped in at any point in the story and kicked those tenants off his land, had them put to death. He just chose to be patient with them. They they mistook his patience for weakness. But in the end, the owner's judgment is swift. Verse nine, Jesus tells us the owner comes and kills those tenants. Again, there's just a warning for anyone who maybe is just putting off, putting their faith in Jesus. We, somebody's mistake patience for weakness. We say, well, maybe, maybe God's going to let me off. Maybe he's never judged me before. I, I'll be fine. Don't mistake patience for weakness. Don't make the mistake the tenants did here. Accept God's offer of salvation. Hear the message he has through his servants while you still have time. But then Pete's already alluded to it, where Jesus ends the parable. He ends it with a psalm, with a song of praise. We think this is like an X-rated, gruesome story Jesus telling us. But actually, for all its sadness and ugliness, it doesn't end on a sad or ugly note. Verse 11, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I don't know if you were looking for a word to describe the parable of the tenants. You probably wouldn't use the word, oh, marvelous. You'd say ugly, grim, dark. Jesus actually in the middle of this ugliness, grimness, darkness, God is doing something marvelous. The death of the son isn't the end of the vineyard. The vineyard survives. It is given to other people. God's purposes for his people and for his world cannot be defeated even by the very worst that human sin can throw at him in spite of our rejection of him, even actually through our rejection of him, Jesus is able to accomplish something marvelous, the salvation of a new, renewed people of God, of everyone and anyone, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, who puts their faith in him, the son of God who willingly gave himself for us. And Jesus, he is the stone the builders rejected. He's the one rejected by his people, rejected by the religious leaders who should have welcomed him. But in the end, he becomes the cornerstone, the leader of a renewed people of God. Even as Jesus says this parable, he knows he's going to be killed by the religious leaders. Not because they're able to catch him out, because he willingly gives himself to them. And why is Jesus willing to go through all that rejection and pain? So that the ugliness of our hearts can be transformed so that our sin can be paid for in full. So the punishment we deserve falls not on us, but on him. 
the Son of God who loves us and saves everyone who puts their faith in him. He does this so that we can receive that, that inheritance of this vineyard, this picture of life with the living God. The Son dies so that the vineyard can go on and be enjoyed and others can be welcomed into this place, into this relationship with the living God. We're going to take bread and wine in a moment. And that gets at the heart of what Jesus is pointing us to in this parable. I always love the way John Stott describes the cross where the Son of God substituted himself for us. He says this, that the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God, put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to us alone. This parable shows us the ugly heart of human sin. But it also shows us that God knows what he's doing. He is able to take all that ugliness on himself. Jesus is standing there before the people who want to kill him, offering to take the ugliness of their hearts on himself and to wash them clean, to take the punishment they deserve so they can walk free, to give his body, his blood in their place so they can be welcomed by the living God. so much in this parable. I guess the thing that struck me this week is that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and he sees the depths of human sin and yet he still chooses to go through with it. You might say he gets the end of the story going, hang on, that sounds horrible what happens to the son. I'm, I'm going to leave Jerusalem. But no, he stays. He lets religious leaders keep coming to him. Then he celebrates the Passover. Then he goes out with his disciples and he prays. Then they come and arrest him. And he could call legions of angels to protect himself. And he lets them take him. And he lets himself be interrogated and flogged and beaten and crucified. He lets himself die. He's buried. And then three days later, he does something marvelous. He rises again and welcomes everyone who trusts in him to be free from that ugliness of sin that otherwise we cannot free ourselves from. Sin is always personal, Jesus shows us in this parable. So is salvation. It's the personal Son of God reaches out to us, takes our punishment, and then welcomes us home.